Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Tom Harbin here with you, and on the line with us is Lamar Waldron. Today would have been the 102nd birthday of President John Kennedy, so we're going to talk about his life and the tragic consequences of his death and how Attorney General William Barr has played a role in keeping thousands, maybe even millions of records about JFK's murder from Congress and the American public. Lamar is my old friend and collaborator. We work together on two books about JFK's assassination, Ultimate Sacrifice and Legacy of Secrecy. Lamar's latest book, The Hidden History of the JFK Assassination. Lamar, welcome back. Great to be with you again, Tom. Thank you, Lamar. Let's first talk about who killed JFK and why. Great. That'll help lay the ground for the bar material to come. And again, you know, today is, would have been JFK's 102nd birthday. But it is important to stress, as as you and I discovered in our many decades of research, JFK's death was not some abstract thing that just happened to him. It was a direct result of his life, particularly his pursuit of organized crime that he began even before he became president, back when he was a senator and his brother Robert Kennedy was the counsel of a uh, Senate committee that looked into the ties between uh, Jimmy Hoffa organized crime, and then it dug deeply into organized crime, going after top godfathers, causing one of them to you know, run down to Cuba to hide out there. And Kennedy was elected uh, on a pledge to go after organized crime, go after their ally, Jimmy Hoffa. And when he became president, he appointed his brother, Robert Kennedy, to do just exactly that. And this was a campaign promise fulfilled. And when you see the charts, it's just ridiculous how the graphs just go off the charts, practically, with how much more effort, time in grand juries, prosecutions, you know, they ramped up the organized crime division, the Justice Department, they had their, their get off a squad, and they really, really went after organized crime. Uh, two godfathers in particular, uh, the godfather of Louisiana and most of Texas, Carlos Marcello, and the godfather of much of Florida, Santo Traficante. And these were not your typical godfathers like you would see on The Sopranos or in the Godfather movie because they didn't battle with other mafia godfathers. They partnered with them. Traficanti in particular, he uh, continued his father's creation of the French Connection heroin network. They brought the heroin yeah, that over. Was, that movie was actually about a real 
situation that Traficani was running. This was a, a real heroin import from France thing. Oh, right. It's smuggling the heroin Algeria. in the cars. And not just in a general sense, but in fact, one of the people who got his cars in successfully, unlike the climbing movie star in the movie who whose car got caught with the heroin, Traficanti's main guy for that, Michael Victor Mertz, whose apartment building he went to while Mertz was still alive. Yeah, I visited the, it in Paris. Right. And, and it was in a great neighborhood where the Duke of Windsor, uh, you know, yep. used to live, you know, because when you help a godfather assassinate president of the United States, you do quite well. And so that godfather in particular, he was deported from Dallas the day after the assassination. So bottom line is it was these two godfathers. The godfather of Chicago was an older guy who delegated much running of the Chicago mafia to uh, a guy who was a mob boss, not a godfather named Sam Giancana. Sam Giancana was under so much pressure from the Kennedys. He delegated his role in the assassination to a mafia dom by the name of Johnny Roselle. So it was two godfathers, Marcello Traficanti and this mafia don acting for the Chicago mob, Johnny Roselli. I mean, and they all later confessed. I mean, and so they're the ones who had to kill JFK. Marcello, Carlos Marcello, he was on trial for most of the month of November. He was not a citizen. He was going to get deported again or sent to prison. So these guys had their backs against the wall. They could no longer go to Cuba. And so that's why they had to kill JFK or they were finished. In fact, in, in the weeks before JFK was killed, finally in Dallas, which was not their first attempt, the newspapers were full how Bobby was getting ready to send an organized crime strike force into Las Vegas. So the mob no longer had their casinos in Cuba. They couldn't run back to there. And so once they got run out of Las Vegas, there was no place left to go for those godfathers in particular. So they simply had to kill JFK. It was simply for them a matter of survival. So how did they kill Kennedy? Or please describe for I, I know the answer. To that. How did they kill Kennedy in a way that would cause the government of the United States to cover it up? Well, you know, and among those people covering up were the president's own brother, Robert Kennedy, because as you and I were the first people to discover and document, and we talked to you know people who actually worked on this program. One uh, of the people you talked to is still a confidential source, but the others we can talk about now, who actually worked on this closely with Robert Kennedy. The Kennedys were planning to bring democracy to Cuba. This was a year after that tense nuclear standoff at the Cuban Missile Crisis, and you know we'd all thought we were getting it blown up. So the Kennedys knew that couldn't be allowed to continue that kind of tense standoff. This was the height of the Cold War with Russia and the Soviets and the Iron Curtain. It's a very different world than it was today. And so this was a very tense time when we almost had faced nuclear annihilation. The 64 election was coming up as Bobby Kennedy's closest aide, John Edward Nolan, told me personally, Bobby did not want Bobby and JFK did not want Cuba to be a political football, just like we see, you know, with different things today in the 64 election. So they had to resolve Cuba before the 64 campaign started off with great guns in January of 64. So the plan was on December the 1st, 1963, 10 days after JFK got back from Dallas, the head of the Cuban army, the number three man in Cuba, the guy much more powerful than Che Guevara, who was not even a Cuban, was going to eliminate Fidel and Raul Castro, stage a coup, but he would not take the blame. The head of the Cuban army, Commander Juan Almeida, the highest black official in Cuba, by the way, 
And this head of the Cuban army, the founder of the Cuban army, this hero of the revolution, was going to blame the deaths of Fidel and Raul Castro on a Russian or a Russian sympathizer, because there were, I believe, 12,000 Russian technical advisors still in Cuba. There were no missiles. There were plenty of Russians to blame it on. Commander Almeida, as head of the army, knew where every one of those Russians was stationed. The CIA, as a kind of backup plan, looks like they were trying to get some U.S. intelligence assets on the ground in Cuba. We no longer had an embassy, which is where the CIA usually stages these things. And so there were uh, U.S. assets uh, that had sympathetic Russian backgrounds who were trying to get into Cuba because you needed that to be able to just go around Cuba anyway to appear like you were a Russian sympathizer. And so what the two godfathers were able to do with the help of Johnny Roselli, they had all three of those mobsters, the two godfathers and Roselli, they had been hired by the CIA on the orders of Vice President Richard Nixon way back in 1960 for Nixon's campaign against JFK to assassinate Fidel before the 60 election. That had not happened. But those three mob leaders were continuing to work for the CIA. The CIA thought they were still trying to help kill Fidel Castro. But of course, he wasn't their concern anymore as long as they had JFK on their back. So the actions those mafia leaders were taking were not to kill Fidel Castro in the fall of 1963, it was to kill John F. Kennedy. So, right, and in 1960, when, when Richard Nixon hired these guys, he was vice president of the United States, and Eisenhower had put him in charge of the Cuba desk, as it were, in part to keep him out of the way, as I recall. Had, well, he had to throw some sort of a bone to Richard Nixon, and the whole Fidel Castro thing was just kind of a mess. So Eisenhower, when Castro came to town, Eisenhower, back in 59, after he had taken over, Eisenhower left town and told Dick Nixon, look, you handle this. Nixon had traveled the world in Russia, Khrushchev. You know, so Nixon saw himself as a foreign affairs expert. So that fit. But the problem was the new president, JFK, after he beat Nixon, was never told about this mafia plot or that it was continuing when he finally did find out about it in the spring of 62. The CIA said, oh, yeah, we finished that. No, they kept on doing it without telling JFK. So the mob bosses... Hang on, hang on, Lamar. We got to take a break here. This is the Tom Hartman Program. We're talking with Lamar Waldron, the hidden history of the JFK assassination. So basically, the two godfathers were able to infiltrate this top secret coup plan that was never supposed to be revealed, not even after Commander Almeida became the leader of Cuba and formed a coalition government with five hand-picked leaders, one of whom, actually two of whom you and I spoke with. It was never supposed to be known that, that Commander Almeida had killed Fidel. But into this top secret program that could never be revealed, the Kennedys had banned the mafia, banned the mafia from reopening their casinos after Castro was overthrown. But the mob bosses had people who were CIA agents like Bernard Barker, for instance, the later Watergate burglar, had been a longtime operative for Traficanti. He was the top aide. He was a full-time CIA agent. He was the aide to the CIA officer who was heading the CIA's part of this, this plan, a guy by the name of E. Howard Hunt, also a later Watergate burglar. So whether Hunt or not was involved with the assassination or not, that remains a question. 
But Bernard Barker, as you and I were both told by one of Bobby Kennedy's close associates, Bernard Barker was definitely involved in the assassination, and others were too. And Barker and so, was working for Traficante. Exactly. They were selling out the United States and the Kennedys and the CA to work for the Godfathers. So they were able to do this. Now, Bobby worried that Castro might find out and retaliate by maybe assassinating U.S. ambassador. So two months before the assassination, Bobby had a subcommittee of the National Security Council start what were called the Cuba Contingency Plans, how to keep a lid on the top secret JFK Almeida coup plan if it looked like it might leak or if a foreign ambassador were killed. We didn't want the U.S. to retaliate, only to find out that it had been like a common street robbery, and we've launched World War III thinking Castro found out and killed the U.S. ambassador. So they made all these plans. People like Alexander Haig, Joseph Califano, the Justice Department, all these people made these plans, which wound up being applied to JFK's murder in terms of things like the autopsy, where, you know, if it looked like the U.S. ambassador had been killed by possible Cuban agents in Panama, you know, you'd want the autopsy not in a Panamanian hospital, but in an official U.S. military facility with U.S. military doctors. So in those ways, as Bobby's own closest aide, John Nolan, told me, those plans were actually applied at the autopsy and in many other ways to the JFK assassination to keep a lid on things, to keep from starting World War III. And that was very important because JFK had almost been killed in Chicago. He canceled his trip three weeks before Dallas. He came very close to being killed in Tampa, Florida, four days before Dallas. They knew about a threat. They knew at least two gunmen were at large. But JFK had to give a speech that night with special lines written for Commander Almeida, like buried in the speech, giving him his personal assurance. JFK could not very well cancel that speech. So he went ahead with that motorcade. Traficante's man on the staff of police force's top man who headed the police intelligence unit told him, yeah, hey, the cops know. So that kit was called off. So everything was kept secret. The Warren Commission was designed to prevent World War III. And so, you know, by the late 60s, it was all, you know, most people, or a lot of people believe the lone nut, magic bullet, Oswald, active right. right. Welcome back. We're talking with Lamar Waldron. And uh, so essentially the uh, the reason why the federal government covered up the assassination of John Kennedy at the time was because they thought that there was some Castro involvement with it. They were afraid if word of that got out that the that the American people would rise up and demand that we attack Cuba. Lyndon Johnson was concerned if we attacked Cuba, that that would trigger the Russians. That would be World War Three. We'd all die. And so they had to cover it up because they didn't realize that it was actually the mob. It wasn't Castro. Is that a good summary, Lamar? <laughs> that is a wonderful, a wonderful summary. And the other important thing there, too, is Commander Almeida wound up not being exposed. Che Guevara was put under house arrest. Apparently, somebody said something somewhere way, way on a low level. And so Che Guevara was put under house arrest and, as we know, eventually exiled to Africa and then to South America to his death. But Commander Almeida remained the number three man. So uh, Bobby Kennedy initially tried to get Lyndon Johnson to continue this plan 
since Almeida was in place and unexposed. But as Lyndon Johnson told people that you and I talked with, he didn't want to have a bay of pigs in the first few months of his administration. Let's jump ahead to 75, 76 and Bill Barr. Tell me about this. In 1975, we've gone through Watergate. Uh, Bernard Barker and E. Howard Hunt, Watergate burglars, they've been prosecuted. By the way, Watergate was all about trying to hide Nixon's authorization of those CIA mafia plots back in 1960. And so, of course, he had people who worked on those plots like Hunt and Barker and most of the others were part of that. And so Nixon has resigned. You know, he was almost impeached. He resigned. Gerald Ford, Nixon's second vice president, first, you know, was, was Agnew, who, who resigned in disgrace. Uh, Ford is vice president. But word about the CIA mafia plots starts to leak out in 1975. And so uh, Senator Frank Church forms a committee. And there's another committee in the House, the, the Pike uh, Committee, to look into the CIA mafia plots. At that time, uh, there, there are whispers of a connection to JFK's assassination, but oddly enough, no connection to Watergate, even though most of the Watergate burglars and their leader, Hunt, were, had been part of those CIA mafia plots to kill Fidel since they started in 1960. So uh, this, this is big stuff. Now, Gerald Ford, the vice president, had been part of the Warren Commission. And Warren Commission had a lot of material withheld from it, but it would look very bad if it made Gerald Ford look like a fool if all this CIA mafia plot kill Castro stuff somehow revealed stuff that some of those people or even CIA people like Parker were involved with the JFK assassination. So that was a big problem for Gerald Ford. So his CIA directors, his second one being a guy by the name of George Bush, the former head of the Republican National Committee, they wanted to just cover up as much as possible because they didn't know the whole story. Ford didn't know the whole story. So much being kept from the This is Bush the senior, and, his, and he was senior. running the CIA, and his right-hand man was Bill Barr, wasn't he? Well, Bill Barr started out in the CIA simply because um, uh, Bush Sr. had been an, an ambassador to China, I believe, and Barr's specialty- He was a trade a, representative, yeah. A lawyer, right, was China. So now the former trade representative to China is head of the CIA, Barr goes to the CIA to work. But then starting in 1976, that's in 76, while the church committee is going on, then Barr becomes one of the general counsels for the CIA. The, the job of the general counsels of the CIA, and there were only a few, were, um, were to liaison with Congress, with the Senate, investigations, and to provide them information. Well, in, instead of the CIA providing all this relevant, highly important information to the church committee and, and the House committee of, of the Pike Commission, of Pike Committee at that time, the CIA is just covering up everything they can because they had already started covering up with the help of the FBI, by the way, back during the Watergate Committee. Watergate Committee knew nothing about the CIA mafia plots, really. They had one secret interview some staff members did with Roselli, then that got shut down. And so the CIA and Roselli got murdered. For the church yeah. committee, I mean, for the Watergate Committee, now they're covering it for the church committee. Uh, William Barr is right in the middle of all this material important material they're withholding from Congress in the mid-70s. Amazing story. Lamar Waldron is with us. His new book, The Hidden History of the JFK Assassination. Today is the 102nd birthday of John Kennedy, and we're going to continue this conversation with Lamar in just a minute. It's fascinating how Bill Barr has been at so many of these turning points. He's kind of like the rain man of Name politics. to the Tom Hartman program. 
you know, using uh, pot for sleeping and pain relief and all this kind of stuff is like, you know, one of the really big hot things, right? You know, in the, in the news and in our culture and all that kind of stuff. But it turns out that the, the component of marijuana, or one of the components of marijuana that's actually the most therapeutic, also shows up in hemp. And hemp doesn't get you high. Hemp is the stuff that they make rope out of. They make diesel fuel out of the seeds and stuff like that. And hemp is really high in CBD, cadabidiol. CBD is also in pot. In fact, uh, you know, in legal pot stores, you go to a legal pot store, I do here in, in Portland, and they've got um, all kinds of products that are just you know, high in CBD with some THC. They're made out of marijuana. So you get high, but you also get the, the pain relief and the anti-inflammatory benefits of the CBD. Well, now New Leaf Naturals, NU Leaf Naturals, has come out with a pure CBD oil that they make out of marijuana's cousin hemp. And hemp doesn't get you high, and hemp is legal in all 50 states. So uh, New Leaf Naturals' new CBD oil is legal in all 50 states. Uh, it's, it's organic. It's grown in the United States. There's no additional additives. The only ingredient is hemp, so it's in its purest and simplest form. To check this out and to get 30% off and free shipping. And this is, this is very concentrated stuff. It's really good stuff. Go to New Leaf Naturals. That's NULeafNaturals.com. NULeafNaturals.com. And if you use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, you'll get that 30% off and you'll get the free shipping. T-H-O-M. So go to New Leaf Naturals, NULeafNaturals.com for premium cannabinoid wellness. There's only one place, NewLeafNaturals.com. A president cannot be charged with a federal crime while he is in office. That is unconstitutional. Even if the charge is kept under seal and hidden from public view, that too is prohibited. The special counsel's office is part of the Department of Justice, and by regulation, it was bound by that department policy. Charging the president with a crime was therefore not an option we could consider. The department's written opinion explaining the policy makes several important points that further informed our handling of the obstruction investigation. Those points are summarized in our report, and I will describe two of them for you. First, the opinion explicitly permits the investigation of a sitting president because it is important to preserve evidence while memories are fresh and documents available. Among other things, that evidence could be used if there were co-conspirators who could be charged now. And second, the opinion says that the Constitution requires a process other than the criminal justice system to formally accuse a sitting president of wrongdoing. And beyond department policy, we were guided by principles of fairness. It would be unfair to potentially it would be unfair to potentially accuse somebody of a crime when there can be no court resolution of the actual charge. So that was Justice Department policy. Those were the principles under which we operated. And from them, we concluded that we would, would not reach a determination one way or the other about whether the president committed a crime. That is the office's, that is the office's final position and we will not comment on any other conclusions or hypotheticals about the president. We conducted an independent criminal investigation 
and reported the results to the Attorney General as required by department regulations. The Attorney General then concluded that it was appropriate to provide our report to Congress and to the American people. At one point in time, I requested that certain portions of the report be released. The Attorney General preferred to make, that in, preferred to make the entire report public all at once. And we appreciate that the Attorney General made the report largely public, and I certainly do not question the Attorney General's good faith in that decision. Now, I hope and expect this to be the only time that I will speak to you in this manner. I am making that decision myself. No one has told me whether I can or should testify or speak further about this matter. There has been discussion about an appearance before Congress. Any testimony from this office would not go beyond our report. It contains our findings and analysis and the reasons for the decisions we made. We chose those words carefully, and the work speaks for itself. And the report is my testimony. I would not provide information beyond that which is already public in any appearance before Congress. In addition, access to our underlying work product is being decided in a process that does, that does not involve our office. So beyond what I've said here today and what is contained in our written work, I do not believe it is appropriate for me to speak further about the investigation or to comment on the actions of the Justice Department or Congress. Tom Hartman here with you. On the line with us is Lamar Waldron, my old writing partner. His new book, The Hidden History of the JFK Assassination. Uh, he also has a book out about Watergate Nixon. Lamar, what's that title? Watergate, The Hidden History. There you go. That's straightforward. Hidden history, hot stuff right now. So we were talking about Bill Barr. He was working for the CIA. The CIA was trying to cover up their involvement back in 1960 when Richard Nixon was vice president. He reached out to the CIA and uh, they put together a deal with uh, Nixon's buddies in the mafia and some of the CIA's buddies in the mafia to assassinate Fidel Castro. It didn't work out and thus Nixon didn't get elected uh, in 1960 as president. JFK did. JFK inherited this and didn't know about it. This whole thing, you know, led to the, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We've, we've covered all this. Um, but the CIA, now we're in the 70s, and the CIA is covering this stuff up. And through its uh, chief counsel, its head lawyer, uh, Bill Barr, do I have, do I, have I recapped everything correctly? Right, right. Bill Barr was one of, I, I think, two or three general counsels for the CIA in the mid-70s. And, and they're just withholding everything. I mean, I mean, all the Watergate burglars were current or former CIA agents. In other words, one of the Watergate burglars was on the payroll of the CIA. Right. So, so in other words, there was so much the CIA had to cover up. There were the murders of congressional witnesses who had formerly worked for the CIA, like Sam Giancana, like Johnny Roselli. Jimmy Hoffa had helped with an earlier version of the CIA mafia plots back in 1959. So then, then these people are all getting murdered before they can testify uh, to these congressional committees. And, and by the way, CIA uh, uh, Cuban exiles who had worked for the CIA in the early 60s on the same mafia plots and, and other efforts to get rid of Castro, they were involved with two horrible things in the mid-70s. Uh, the blowing up of the former Chilean ambassador 
Orlando Terrier, I, I think I'm saying that right, and blowing up a Cubana airliner with more than 100 people on it. So the CIA had to cover up a lot of stuff. You know, they worried that even all this assassination, JFK assassination stuff, could lead to these other things. And, so, and it wasn't, Lamar, let's just be clear. It wasn't that the CIA was running around killing these people. These, these, the CIA was in bed with the mob. The mob was doing housekeeping, killing off these people. But exactly because the CIA right. was in bed with them, they had to cover it up. And in fact, one of the cover-ups went even farther. So after Johnny Roselli was killed, after he had testified in secret session several times to the church committee, so he was murdered spectacular mob fashion as a signal that he had taught too much and others shouldn't talk, and his body's found floating in an oil drum. A new committee was formed, the House Select Committee on Assassinations, just to look into the assassinations of JFK and Martin Luther King. And the CIA went even farther. They didn't just withhold information from that House Select Committee. They went even farther than that. They mounted a secret operation where they recalled a guy, George Joannides, from retirement who had handled a Cuban exile group that had dealt with Lee Harvey Oswald. And when the House committee said, we want to talk to the CAA agent who managed this Cuban exile group that was dealing with Lee Harvey Oswald, the CIA said, well, we'll send you this expert to help you find that guy. Well, the guy they sent to the House Select Committee was that guy, George Joannides, who had run that Cuban exile group that dealt with Oswald. But he was like, well, gee, I can't find the guy you're looking for, he told the committee. We're right. looking real hard. But he was the guy. <laughs> so I'm talking about obstruction of justice. Now, so, it's unclear. so where is Bill Barr in all this? Well, see, that's what's not clear, because while there was clear obstruction of justice there on the part of the CIA, did Barr have a role in that? Was it another sage? We don't know. All of that material is some of the million plus pages of information still being withheld to this day related to the JFK assassination. So is that is that why it's been being withheld? Uh, you know, not not to cover up for Bill Barr, but to cover well, up the like CIA's say, involvement they, they, they with the mafia. They don't want to nail down who was saying what. Like I say, people should have and could probably still be today prosecuted for obstructing Congress with that deceitful operation. Bill Barr might be. You know, so let's just cover everything up. That cover-up worked, and so now we can flash ahead again. We could jump ahead another 10 years or so and now get to the late 80s when Bill Barr kind of resurfaces again in things. And I'll, I'll let you set the stage a little bit from where, where we are in the late 80s, by the late 80s. Let, let's go to 1988, 1989. We're, we're just going to skip the Reagan presidency. Except okay, you're talking about Barr and Noriega now. Right, right. So except we're going to skip the Reagan presidency, except for the fact that Reagan's attorney general had to resign and, and should have gone to prison, Edwin Meese, because he was involved in three scandals, Iran-Contra being one. And so there's a Iran-Contra where Congress said you can't send money to Contras. You know, yeah. contras. And, and a lot of the Contras were and were being run by the same Cuban exiles that the CIA had been using since 1960 on the CIA mafia plots and even some on the JFK Almeida Q plan. So, right. and, and including at least one who had knowledge of JFK's assassination. So when you hear the word Contras, you don't think well, CIA-backed Cuban exiles. That's what they were, though. And so Barr is now a general counsel for the Justice Department, not to say the Justice Department. And he writes this memo. So now Bush Sr. is president. Right. Reagan, Vice President Bush, senior is now president and william barr writes a memo detailed memo outlining the legal justification that we can go 
conquer and invade and conquer another country just to arrest that country's leader and bring him back to the United States for trial. And that's Manuel Noriega, the head of Panama. Now, Congress wants to see this memo, right? And Barr says, no, no, no. I'll kind of summarize it for you. I'll give you a verbal summary. I'll write up a little summary. And then so you'll know everything that's in this memo, but I won't give you the actual memo. Well, of course, years later, after Barr was gone, it turned out, yeah, he had totally lied to Congress in his testimony and his little summary of his actual memo. So, yeah, again, you can start to see this pattern with, with, with Barr here. And of course, when you basically provide cover for President Bush Sr., that earns you a promotion. And that's exactly what Barr got. He then moved from being a general counsel to deputy attorney general, essentially the Rod Rosenstein for George Bush Sr. And in that role, he constantly obstructed the Iran-Contra special prosecutor, kind of like you know the uh, uh, Bob Mueller today. This guy was named Lawrence Walsh. And he was constantly obstructing Lawrence Walsh. If, if, if anyone gets, gets Lawrence Walsh's book called Firewall, it's just full of all this great information. And, and I mean, we're talking very sophisticated operations. It wasn't just Barr. Barr and the Republicans from the White House to Congress, they had coordinated PR efforts. They were constantly attacking the special prosecutor, not just his office, Lawrence Walsh personally. You know how now... Barr is going after the investigators, is investigating the origin of Mueller and, and the whole Trump investigation. The same thing Barr did to Lawrence Walsh, the Iran-Contra special prosecutor, back in the early 90s when he was deputy attorney general. And things only got worse once Lawrence Walsh became attorney general. Now, against this backdrop, you and I and probably everybody listening remembers the great Oliver Stone JFK film. Sure. You know, great film, not great history in some ways, but a great dramatic film, right? And that created, among a lot of people, including you and I, a great interest in the JFK assassination. So while all the surround Contra stuff is going, and by the way, there are people like uh, writers like Peter Dale Scott who were saying, wait a minute, I think there's a connection between Iran Contra and, and some people involved in the JFK assassination and Watergate, you know. And so that was bubbling below the surface there that, hey, was there a connection here between Iran-Contra and JFK assassination? So Congress found out there were a lot of files left that hadn't been uh, disclosed because I think Oliver Stone put that at the end of his movie. We thought there were a few thousand files. Of course, there were millions of pages. And so there was a move to have something called the 1992 JFK Act. Congress, uh, despite all of the, the, the extensive efforts of William Barr, the Attorney General, and uh, President Bush Sr., Congress managed to pass the JFK Records Act to declassify all of the JFK assassination files. They, Congress passed that unanimously in 1992 and gave it to Barr and to Bush to get those files but out Barr, there. Barr and Bush were up to their eyeballs in a lot of this stuff. They couldn't let that stuff come out. Exactly. And Bush so, was running for re-election that year against Bill Clinton. Exactly. So they couldn't let this stuff come out, right? So in, instead of, of appointing a review board to get those files out in a hurry, they just stonewalled. 
And instead, so instead of releasing all the JFK assassination files before that election, the 92 election, where Bush Sr. is facing off against Bill Clinton, they obstruct it, they sit on it, and instead, Barr starts giving Bush Sr. advice about how Bush Sr. can avoid prosecution for his role in Iran-Contra by pardoning Right, because Lawrence Walsh had just subpoenaed the, his his uh, his diaries, which would have implicated George Bush Sr. in all this stuff as well. Many investors are asking, how long will this economic bubble last? When the inevitable crash takes place, what will that look like for your retirement? Will you have enough time to rebuild, or are you currently looking for ways to safeguard your existing portfolio? If the worst happens, it won't just be the markets and real estate. With the Fed's nonstop money printing, a dollar collapse is even more concerning. There are simple charts the Federal Reserve provides to help us investors make educated decisions. Google the Fred chart on the purchasing power of the dollar and look at the data yourself. Also take notice that the last 100 years of recessions have consistently occurred within 10 years from each other. The last recession was in 2008. What does that tell you? Gold and silver are statistically the best hedge against volatile markets and economies. Call my friends at ITM Trading at 1-888-OWN-GOLD. Ask them for their free gold protection guide and protect your future while you still can. Call 1-888-OWN-GOLD. That's 1-888-OWN-GOLD. So Barr and Bush Sr. are freaked out that the JFK Act has passed. We didn't talk about Noriega's role in all this. You know, this was uh, one of Bush Sr.'s big accomplishments was busting Noriega. Why did he want to take out Noriega and what was Barr's role in that? Well, again, so Barr wrote that legal justification that, that we did touch on where Barr lied to Congress about this flimsy justification and, and said it had things it didn't have, didn't tell them what he did put in it. And basically, Noriega had been on the CIA payroll back in the mid-1970s when Bush was CIA director, of course. And then a lot of the Cuban exiles, I mean, you and I think a lot of the Cuban exiles and the people that fought in Bay of Pigs, we talked to those people. But there were a lot of those people that then, after the CIA pulled their support back in the 60s, they got into drug trafficking big time. Okay, mm -hmm. And so... That was another thing that CIA Director Bush Sr. back in the 70s was trying to, to hide was that all these, a lot of the, these Cuban exile drug traffickers were supported by the CIA, some were still working for the CIA. So Noriega was just one of many drug traffickers from the 70s and in the 80s backed by the CIA. And when Bush needed a way to distract the country from Iran-Contra and from Bush's on role in it, he has Barr phony up this legal justification, lie to Congress about it, and Bush, you know, invades Panama, kills at least hundreds, if not more than a thousand civilians needlessly. Noriega, I believe, is, you and I went to, you know, drove past that little isolated prison there. By the way, you know who prosecuted Noriega was a good friend of William Barr by the name of Robert Mueller. Really? Yes. Yes, wow. that is when that is when Robert Mueller apparently that is that is when Robert Mueller and William Barr became good friends. Their wives remained good friends over the years. I mean, I, I think even you know into the two thousands, uh, Mueller's wife and Barr's wife were going to Bible study together. Yeah. So in other words, as much as as much as Trump likes to talk about the friendship between Comey and Mueller, which you know there was a relationship there. I don't know. I'd call them you know buddy buddy. Yes, Barr and Mueller are buddy-buddy. So whenever you hear Mueller talking today and, and tying himself in knots 
not to cast Barr publicly in a bad light. You just have to keep that sort of, yeah. So they, Mueller, the Mueller Barr team formed in the process, the, I think, illegal prosecution of Noriega after the illegal invasion of Panama. So, um, so, 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 so everything worked out though. Thanks to William Barr, Bush pardoned those, those, I believe it was five people, including the former Casper uh, Weinberger was the main one. Um, I think Elliot Abrams. North, Elliot Abrams, yeah. Kelly Abrams, who is in the Trump administration today, dealing with another Latin American country, Venezuela, was pardoned. So they put the lid on the JFK Act for a couple of years. Bill Clinton finally got that going. But Bush was not prosecuted. He left office because he pardoned all the people who would have testified against him. Right. At Bill Barr's recommendation. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Donald Trump ran for president on the explicit promise in 2016 that he was going to release all the JFK records. 2017 came and went, and I didn't see any JFK records being released. What happened? Well, there were some released. There were a few thousand released, none of the important ones, of course. And and then, so in October of 2017, when they were all supposed to, finally, all supposed to be released, even the most sensitive, all supposed to be released, you know, and you could just black out informant names who might still be alive, but release everything. Trump decides, well, I'll, we'll release some now. We'll kick the can down the road six months. I'll give everybody time. Six months later, he kicked the can down the road again to October of 2021. Has decreed that all the JFK files won't be released until 2021, yeah. when he might not even be president anymore. Right. And we're not talking a small number of files here either. So what role does Mitch McConnell play in all this? Well, so Mitch McConnell isn't going to complain about any of this because Mitch McConnell started his career as the assistant to one of the Warren commissioners, the guy from Kentucky. It might have been Sherman Cooper, but, but one of the one of the Warren commissioners was from Kentucky and Mitch McConnell started his role then. So even though Chuck Grassley has made noises in Congress about wanting the, the JFK files released, Mitch McConnell, not Grassley, rules what happens in the Senate. And Mitch McConnell is not going to go out of his way because, again, you know, a lot of people today think the Warren Commission is the only government investigation. There were at least, you know, that was one of five and like the other ones don't exist. And so Mitch McConnell doesn't want that stuff to come out. Well, and in one of those investigations, Congress actually concluded that Kennedy was killed as a consequence of a, of a conspiracy that was later covered up. Exactly. And depending on how you count, the third or the fourth, when that, that House committee, that the, the CAA, while Barr was in it, engineered that obstruction of justice and massive withholding. Yeah, they concluded JFK was killed by a conspiracy and that Carlos Marcello and Sino Traficati had the motive means opportunity, but they didn't have the proof because the CIA and FBI was withholding so much. And, and as for what's secret now, I mean, we're talking, even the National Archives admits they, they're withholding at least 442,000 pages. But according to an NBC News report from when the JFK uh, Review Board ended back in 98, there could be a million CIA records, not pages, records alone. And a lot of those concern, you know, the attempt to kill JFK in Tampa, the JFK Almeida coup plan, what Bernard Barker was doing on that coup plan in 1963, what E. Howard Hunt was doing, what, what some other Cuban leaders who were bought off by 
Traficante and Marcello were doing. You know, Carlos Marcello's um, hundreds of hours of him on tape and transcripts of those tapes where he's talking about his role in JFK's assassination after he made a, a full a, a confession, clear confession to, to in front of an FBI informant when he was in prison. So there's a ton of all the really good stuff is still being withheld. But we're going to have to wait unless, you know, unless Trump is no longer president somehow, uh, we're going to have to wait until 2021 to have a look at those records. Yeah. So well, I'm guessing that even if uh, if Trump loses the election, that whoever is the would be the Democratic new Democratic president is is probably not going to come into office in January and say, yeah, let's just hit the ground running and and uh, roll these things out when they're going to get all kinds of blowback from the CIA well, and FBI. On. Well, well, now here, here here's where your listeners can 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 help to change history because yeah if if nothing changes you're exactly right but if your listeners get their friends and their friends and you can and we can get one or more i think if we can get one of the democratic candidates to commit to releasing those files within a couple of months after they take office i think all the rest of the democratic candidates will have to sign on to that pledge as well so i think if we can get one Democratic candidate to say, I will release those files. You're not going to have to wait until 2021 only to have the. So, Lamar, you know, no, I get it. And people certainly should contact their candidates and their and their elected representatives. What do you say to somebody in their 20s who has no recollection of John Kennedy as a president? Uh, John Kennedy is as meaningful to them as Woodrow Wilson would be to you or me. And they're like, why do I care about this? I tell you one big reason. We talked about the Cuba contingency plans that Bobby Kennedy and Al Haig and these guys that were, were, were planned how to how to keep a lid on the coup plan if it looked like Castro might have found out about it. Right. Well, they thought, yeah, Castro might assassinate a U.S. ambassador in Panama, but there's no way on earth he would attack anyone inside the United States. And they just say that all up and down in the few memos we had there. There were thousands, but we've got a few of those. Right. Now, if, if you flash ahead to 9-11, there were the same, almost the exact same words were being talked about in the intelligence community. Yeah, bin Laden wants to attack the United States and get at us somehow, but he'll never. And it's almost the same wording. He'll, he'll never attack inside the United States. So that's just one example. I mean, if, if the lessons of the Kennedy assassination were known because all the files were declassified, we, 9-11 probably wouldn't have happened because nobody would make that mistake again. And so mm. that's just one of the reasons. The other big reason is, I mean, we're talking about a lot of secret stuff with the Mueller report now. You know, it, it's been over 50 years on the JFK assassination. If, if they're going to keep that stuff secret, God knows how long they're going to be keeping parts of the Mueller report. I mean, we don't even know right now. Did Mueller investigate Deutsche Bank? Did Mueller investigate financial ties between Trump and the Russians? It we appears not. It appears not. It appears that all of that whole national security investigation, I think he thought he was leaving that to the FBI or something. Well, or something. Like I said, we don't know. We, we need him to tell us. So, you know, if we don't want to see this stuff being held for another 50 years, let's get that JFK stuff out as soon as the next Democrat assumes the Oval Office. Because right. I, I don't even want to think what happens if we don't have a Democratic president. A starting point. Yeah. Amen. Lamar Waldron, The Hidden History of the JFK Assassination, The Hidden History of Watergate. Lamar, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Tom. You're listening to Tom Hartman. 
Stephanie Miller here. If you watch 60 Minutes and you own a home, you just got very nervous. I did. The FBI's former head of cybercrimes warned homeowners that foreign and domestic thieves can steal your home and do it all online. That's because home titles and mortgages are kept in databases that can be hacked. If you have equity in your home, here's how they get you. They simply forge their name onto your home's title, use your home as collateral to borrow cash, and stick you with the payments. And no bank or identity theft program protects you. You need Home Title Lock, America's leading title and mortgage guardian. For pennies a day, Home Title Lock puts a virtual barrier around your home's title and mortgage. If cyber thieves tamper with it, we mobilize to help shut it down. You may already be a victim. Here's how to find out. Go to HomeTitleLock.com and register for your free title scan and report. $100 value, free with sign-up. Don't let cyber thieves steal your home. Go to HomeTitleLock.com like I did. That's HomeTitleLock.com. One more time, that's HomeTitleLock.com. It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Legacy of Secrecy, The Long Shadow of the JFK Assassination by Lamar Waldron and me. This is from the introduction. The assassination of President John F. Kennedy on November 22, 1963, triggered cover-ups by officials uh, that continue to negatively impact American politics, life, and foreign policy. Legacy of Secrecy details those cover-ups and hidden investigations, many for the first time, including the reasons they were carried out under such intense secrecy. Most were spawned by John and Robert Kennedy's top-secret 1963 plan to stage a coup against Fidel Castro, a plan so highly classified that it only started to be exposed in 2005 and is fully, finally, revealed in this book. Their own confessions now show that three mafia bosses, Carlos Marcello, Santo Traficante, and Johnny Roselli, were behind JFK's assassination. They used parts of the secret coup plan to kill JFK in a way that forced Attorney General Robert Kennedy, President Lyndon B. Johnson, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, and high CIA official Richard Helms to withhold critical information not only from the public and the press, but also from each other and sometimes their own investigators. It's important to keep in mind that JFK was murdered just a year after the tense nuclear standoff during the Cuban Missile Crisis. The main goals of U.S. officials were to prevent a nuclear confrontation with the Soviets and to protect JFK's ally high up in the Cuban government, Commander Juan Almeida, head of the Cuban Army in 1963, still listed as Cuba's number three official today. While U.S. leaders have managed to prevent a confrontation with Russia and preserve a critical ally in the Cuban government, this limited the investigation into JFK's murder, allowing the three mafia chiefs and their associates to remain free. As a result, the long shadow of secrecy surrounding both JFK's murder and the coup plan set the stage for the murder of Martin Luther King, ultimately driving two presidents from office and bringing about the murders of five congressional witnesses in the mid-1970s. Legacy of Secrecy breaks important new ground in key areas, detailing for the first time Louisiana Godfather Carlos Marcello's clear confession to ordering JFK's assassination. Marcello's criminal empire ranged from Dallas to Memphis, and previously secret files at the National Archives have shown that he made this confession in 1985 to an FBI informant ruled credible by a federal judge <clears throat> as part of a secret FBI undercover sting operation named Camtex. Exposed here for the first time, Cantex yielded Marcello's admission that he'd met Lee Harvey Oswald and set Jack Ruby up in business in Dallas. The operation also generated hundreds of hours of heretofore secret prison audio tapes of Marcello discussing his crimes, recorded using the FBI informant's bugged transistor radio. Yet the FBI and Justice Department withheld most of that information from the public and Congress for years 
until its revelation in this book. Carlos Marcello wasn't the only mob boss who confessed his involvement in JFK's murder to a trusted associate. Legacy also uncovers important new information about Marcello's partners in JFK's assassination, Tampa Godfather Santos Traficanti and Johnny Roselli, the Chicago Mafia's man in Las Vegas and Hollywood. Shortly before their deaths, both mobsters admitted their roles in JFK's murder to their attorneys. Two of their associates with documented ties to the secret JFK Almeida coup plan likewise confessed. Using exclusive new information supported by FBI files apparently withheld from Congress, this book names two of the Georgia men who paid James Earl Ray to kill the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, white supremacist Joseph Miltier and Hugh R. Spake. Miltier, who had been involved in Marcello's murder of JFK, was part of a small clique of racists in Atlanta who used Marcello to broker the contract to murder Dr. King. We document James Earl Ray's ties to Marcello's heroin swing smuggling operation and long overlooked evidence in FBI files linking Ray to Marcello's associate, Johnny Roselli. Finally, this book explains why Ray, while fleeing to Canada the day after killing Dr. King in Memphis, made a 400-plus mile detour south to Atlanta where he contacted Spake to get help from Miltier. In 1979, the last Congressional Committee to investigate the murders of JFK and Dr. King, the House Select Committee on Assassinations, concluded, quote, that Traficante, like Marcello, had the motive, means, and opportunity to assassinate President Kennedy, end of quote from the Congressional Report. The HSCA had been created in the wake of Roselli's sensational murder, but the HSCA was unable to establish direct evidence of Marcello's complicity. And the same was true for Traficante and Roselli, because the CIA, FBI, and other federal agencies withheld so many relevant files. With the help of more than two dozen associates of John and Robert Kennedy, backed up by thousands of recently released documents at the National Archives, many of which are quoted here for the first time, Legacy tells the full story denied to Congress and the American people, Legacy of Secrecy. There's just some remarkable remarkable studies out there with three different economic evaluations and this was in the washington post over the weekend three different evaluations of donald trump's prospects in 2020 and i share this with you not to bum you out but by way of hopefully uh, waking you up steve ratner or stephen ratner worked as a counselor to the treasury secretary in the obama administration he's a democrat and he's an economist or a Wall Street guy or whatever. I, you know, I, I don't know his whole history. He comes on Morning Joe from time to time with charts and graphs. Hey, look at this. And seems to be relatively non-ideological. And so he's talking about this fellow, Ray Fair, who is a professor at Yale. And he found, and quoting from Steve Ratner's piece in the New York Times on the 27th on yesterday, uh, he said that the, the growth rates of... GDP, gross domestic product, and inflation have been the two most important economic predictors along with incumbency about whether somebody gets elected president. In other words, if somebody's already president, they're much more likely to get reelected than not, number one. Now, incumbency didn't help Jimmy Carter. Uh, incumbency didn't help George Herbert Walker Bush. But most presidents of the 20th century, and, and incumbency didn't help uh, Lyndon Johnson, although he didn't run, right? He was not successful in any of the wars, so the Vietnam War just killed his political career. But incumbency has been a big deal. 
But if you set aside incumbency that, or, or add to incumbency, the, these two big things, is inflation high and is the economy and is unemployment low, right? And, or, or is unemployment high or low, right? Whichever it may be. And what Ratner points out is that when inflation is low and unemployment is low and an incumbent president is standing for re-election, that incumbent president is almost always re-elected. Period, full stop. And he says, using this model, this model that was developed by this Yale professor, Ray Fair, it predicted that President Obama would win 53.1% of the vote. His actual share, 53.7. That was uh, 2008. In 2012, the guess that he made was that Obama was going to get 51.8%, and he was off by only two-tenths of 1%. So, you know, this guy's numbers have really worked. And according to this model, Donald Trump gets reelected. Assuming that the economy holds together for the next year and a half. He says, in, in, since 1952, only one man has become president following eight years of the president of the same party. So, you know, after that, so in 2024, you could expect it to change. But in 2020, incumbency will be a tailwind for Trump. He said, in his present state, the economy will also be helpful to the president. All told, Trump's vote share would ordinarily, given this economy right now, be as high as 56%. But when you factor in his personality, how many people hate him, particularly women, it still, you know, it still may be enough to get him elected. All the more reason for us to you know, get seriously, you know, genuinely, actually involved in this stuff. So we'll see where this goes. According to Ray Higgins, according to all the facts, Obama has way more to do with job creation and the positive economy than Trump. But don't let that keep you from reelecting someone against your best interests. Exactly right. And in fact, Ray Higgins, if you check my Twitter feed right now, he tweeted the graph, the, the chart, right? 94 months of continuous U.S. job growth. And you're absolutely right. I mean, this is what happened when Obama put the economy back together after George W. Bush ruined it. It's just continuing. Anyway, uh, here's a, a few others here. I'm giving Trump a 50-50. This is uh, on Facebook, 100 per Dito. I'm giving Trump a 50-50 chance of getting reelected. We'd rather not see it, but I think it's 50-50. You know, I think you're right. And I think it can go either way right now. And there's a lot of kind of gnashing of teeth and wringing of hands about, oh, gee, well, if we get somebody, a lefty like Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, then, you know, the Republicans will make it all about socialism and we're going to lose. And if you get Joe Biden in or somebody, Klobuchar, or somebody who is, quote, a centrist and taking corporate money and all that kind of stuff, then you're going to lose, particularly if, uh, in fact, this is the, the piece I wrote over the weekend, if, if they're binding themselves to Bill Clinton and Barack Obama's free trade agenda, they're going to continue to lose working class people, you know, right across the board. And because Trump is going to make this election, mark my words, Donald Trump is going to make this election, the 2020 election, about basically two things. Now, you know, depending on who the Democratic nominee is, there will be a third or fourth thing added in there. So if it's uh, you know, Bernie or, or Warren, he's going to make it about, quote, socialism. If it's Joe Biden or one of the more, quote, middle-of-the-road candidates, he's going to make it about their past, you know, whatever it may be. But I think that the two big issues that he's going to be campaigning on are immigration and trade. 
And in both cases, he's taking arguments that were made by Democrats. Right? Democrats back in the 1980s were horrified when Ronald Reagan stopped enforcing the law against hiring people who are not documented, who, you know, who don't either have a green card or are citizens in the United States. You know, every other country in the world, or every other developed country in the world, and I can tell you this from personal experience, if you want to work in that country and you're not a citizen, you have to get a work permit, the equivalent of a green card. I had to do that when I lived in Germany. I had to do that when I worked in Australia. You have to get the permission of the government. And in Australia, it was just to give a speech or a series of speeches. I, you know, I spent uh, two weeks traveling around Australia. This was back in the late 90s, speaking on attention deficit disorder. And before that, I had done a similar tour talking about my book, uh, Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight, speaking about the environment. And because I was being paid by some of the groups that were bringing me in to speak, and it wasn't you know, some big fortune or anything. I mean, it was basically it covered the cost of the trip. But still, there was money involved. And so, therefore, I had to get a work permit in Australia. And it took a couple of months to apply for it and let the government know what I was going to do and all this kind of stuff. So that's how it was in the United States prior to 1986. And then in 86, after, after Reagan's uh, immigration reform was passed, and it was, a, it was a reasonably good bipartisan effort, by the way, that gave, uh, that gave citizenship to 5 million people who had been in the country for more than a decade. After that was passed, Reagan basically decided, as part of his effort to destroy American unions, that he was going to stop enforcing these laws against American corporations hiring people who are not citizens. And so he did. He just stopped enforcing them. Right? We're not going to put wealthy white employers in jail anymore. And within a generation, multiple industries had gone from being heavily unionized and all U.S. citizen workers to being non-union and being filled with people who are not citizens of this country. The two that most people are real familiar with are meatpacking and construction. These industries, these used to be, you know, the bastions of good-paying, high-paying union jobs. And, you know, after Reagan stopped enforcing the laws about this kind of stuff, this is where we got. So... Trump is coming along and saying the same thing. Now, keep in mind, back in the 80s when this was happening, Donald Trump was a Democrat. And these were the positions of the Democratic Party. Reagan shouldn't be doing this on immigration. And Reagan was also negotiating NAFTA. Like I said earlier, Bill Clinton gets blamed for NAFTA, but it was Ronald Reagan negotiated NAFTA, and George H.W. Bush finished the negotiation. The deal was done before Bill Clinton came into office. He just signed the legislation. And the Democrats, many of the Democrats, were strongly opposed to that. So these are the two things Trump is going to campaign on, and he's taking old Democratic positions, which scares me. Or let me rephrase that, concerns me. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.